Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. Attention. Spoiler alert. Now for all the jitterbugs from Pico Rivera, baby, I'm going loose for Hey! I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. Quentin Tarantino's new and irresistibly talkable movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is many things, but let's start with two. First, it's a meticulous reconstruction of Los Angeles in the 1960s. Sunlight angling through smog. The game faces of white guys, their lingo, their cars, and their car radios, their hair, their self-pity, all at the moment of the Manson murders in Benedict Canyon, August 9th, 1969. At the same time, the movie is a flight of fancy into an alternative ending for a horror story. Yet another take on violence from the bloody-minded moralist Tarantino. He is building on essayist Joan Didion's famous line that the Manson murders marked an abrupt end of the 60s, the bursting of a zany freedom bubble that lots of people knew was coming. A demented and seductive vortex of tension was building in Hollywood, Didion wrote. The dogs barked every night, and the moon was always full. And when the shocking news of midnight murder in the hills was confirmed, what she remembered, and wish she didn't, was that no one was surprised. There's the context of 1969 in which Quentin Tarantino has placed his own invention, a buddy flick with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt cast as a downwardly mobile actor and his stuntman sidekick both of them trying to stay alive in a culture war. There's propulsive energy and fun in this movie, and a strange beauty, too. I'm asking A.S. known as Scott Hamra, the movie critic at N Plus One, to get us started with the review he hasn't written yet. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a strange beauty, as you put it, because the film is essentially a fairy tale, as well as a shaggy dog story about a specific time in Hollywood before the loss of innocence that's represented by the Manson murders. Hmm. The Manson murders were seen by 70s kids as the ultimate evil. You recall that there was a TV movie called Helter Skelter based on the book right. by the prosecutor of Charles Manson that a lot of people my age saw. And uh, evil hippies were constantly held up as potential kidnappers, murderers, uh, home invaders, etc. So in this film, Tarantino is playing with that myth. What he's doing is creating a revisionist history, much like the, the revisionist genre movies of the late 60s and early 70s, like The Wild Bunch or McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. But what has happened in, in the reception of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with older critics is that because they think they own that history, they don't want anyone to mess with it. Let me just say, there are two histories here being rewritten. One is the Manson murders. The other is that big picture of L.A. and real guys on the freeway in their beautiful cars having what seemed a wonderful life. Both are being reevaluated. Right. Well, Tarantino specifically 
choosing as his main characters people who are kind of losers and who aren't really part of the new Hollywood that is coming in the late 60s and early 70s as represented by Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. His, his character, Rick Dalton, is a television cowboy actor. And he's at a point in his career where he's trying to make it in the, in, the, in the movies, but he's not really succeeding. He's kind of like if Clint Eastwood at that time had not right. broken out of television from being on Rawhide and gone to Italy to appear in the Sergio Leone movies that made him a huge international star. Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, is poised on that cusp, but maybe he's not exactly a Clint Eastwood. Tarantino is profoundly respectful of the guys as guys, as strugglers, as men under pressure, and also as craftsmen in his art. Well, in the case of Rick, his status as a craftsman, as you put it, is is uncertain. It's only through this kind of crisis he's having that he becomes a better craftsman when he encounters the eight-year-old girl, Trudy Frazier, on the set of... um, Lancer, the the cowboy show he's appearing in, in a guest role as the heavy. She forces him to kind of look into his soul uh, while they're talking, and she's being mean to him a little bit because he's not respectful to her as an actress or a person. She's instructing him. She She's instructing him, yes. And when they get to play their scene together, he kind of moves into a new mode of acting that's more aligned with the kind of Hollywood that's coming. Scott, there are so many beautiful, remarkable details in this movie, but this is a rare film in which the post-game conversation is all about the moral experience of these three hours in a theater. Yes, almost three hours. Go right to that. And it's not just the violence either. The, the film asks audiences to accept people who are morally ambiguous characters. Rick's friend and gopher and his stuntman, Cliff, who's played by Brad Pitt, is an alleged murderer who has perhaps killed his wife in a boating accident that maybe he made happen. Rick is portrayed as not a particularly enlightened person. You know, he casually uses terms for Mexican-Americans that people shouldn't use now and don't use now for the most part. His attitude towards uh, hippies is, you know, comically portrayed as of its time, you know, dirty hippies. We are asked to, to accept this person, you know, as a human being despite his foibles and problems and to see if he can kind of rise to the occasion that the film is presenting him with. And so the moral ambiguity of the film keeps sliding back and forth. It culminates in these scenes at the end of the film that people have had very visceral reactions to. To me, what Tarantino is doing is something very kind of genius and sly, which is forcing people to confront the evil of the Mansons against the way that they want to see it. It's complicated, Scott. Speak to why it resonates with 2019. This is your country in pain after fashion. This is the dread that something profoundly wrong is approaching. Not to mention white guy nostalgia, all sorts of other themes that we talk about every day. We live in a time, perhaps, that is the worst period the country has gone through since then. We are confronted with the racism and quasi-fascism of our leaders every day. And I think Tarantino was very insightful and ahead of the game in deciding to make this film that takes place at the last period that was kind of similar 
to today when we are in the midst of uh, unprecedented psychotic violence in our country. Mm-hmm. That resonates so clearly. And, you know, people are always interested, especially people who love movies, in older periods in Hollywood history. I don't think the film is simply a uh, nostalgic, you know, romp through that period at all. I think it's a very sly and conflicted film about a time in American Mm. history that the filmmaker clearly loves because he was a boy then and also knows represented a a break in what the film positions as the innocence of someone like Sharon Tate. So the film is, is, like I said, a fairy tale attempt to rescue her from history. And this is really bothering people because they don't want their history tampered with, even in a fictional setting. People come out of the theater shocked at the violence in it, and the next thing they hear is the shootings in El Paso and Dayton. I mean, how do we assimilate this in life and truth and art? The film asks us to make moral decisions about these characters, which you know clearly likes. I mean, the deck is stacked in their favor. There's no question about that. However, that's still something that we have to do in the film. People today want their morals served to them on a plate. They want to know that they're right or wrong, and they want everything to be black or white. And the world is not like that, and films and art should not be that way either. There are a lot of films playing today that are simplistic, childish, militaristic superhero films that have that kind of morality. And there are a lot of films playing that are these mutant CGI movies that are uh, remakes of earlier films in a semi-live-action way with uh, computer-generated lion cubs and so on. If people want to exist in a moral universe where that's the kind of film that we get, they they can do that. They don't have to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They can go to see Spider-Man or The Lion King or Captain Marvel or what have you. I don't think those films are very good. In the kind of mainstream cineplex film landscape we live in now, it is designed to make people forget about the problems in the world, not to make them discuss them or think about them or think about people from the past and the kind of choices they made in their lives. What does Quentin Tarantino owe to the spaghetti westerns, which are just off stage in this whole movie? Yes, they, of course, in the film, Rick finally succumbs to going to Italy and appearing as a star in spaghetti westerns and other Italian genre films. The moral universe of a Tarantino film is one that was created by his love of spaghetti westerns and other kinds of uh, genre films. And if people can't participate in that moral universe, like you see in Once Upon a Time in the West, or for, for a few dollars more, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, then, then they are missing something in the films. But that is an important part of his, uh, of his moral universe, the, the slippery... Uh, morality of these Italian films from the 60s and early 70s that presented corrupt capitalist societies exploiting people and, you know, robbing them. You know, they're gritty, they're violent, they're sick, they're bloody, but these are interesting parts of pop culture history that are, that have formed Tarantino as an artist and he's putting them on display. Come back to the final violence. Did Tarantino check himself and say, now, must I show this awful smashing of a woman's face in the final scene. I can't speak for him, but I think he was thinking of the alternative, which is showing what actually happened to Sharon Tate. The choice he made was to present a film in which the violence happens to the killers, not to the victims in reality. 
he turns around the violence that was perpetrated on Sharon Tate and her friends against the Manson family. In, in fact, one could argue that he's less brutal than they were. So the, the point of the film is this moment of, you know, of preventing Sharon Tate and her unborn child and her friends from being killed. It's a fairy tale ending. At the end, the gates open up and the princess lets Rick in to her, you know, to her house. And the, and the hope, and it's kind of a cheesy thing, is that maybe Rick will get to be in a film that's directed by Roman Polanski. Instead of having to be in television westerns, he can be in a film directed by the person who made Chinatown. History is changed by this, in this fantasy world that he's presented. Coming up, the singer-psychopath Charles Manson, who haunts Hollywood to this day. This is Open Source. Karina Longworth is the spoken word historian of forgotten or hidden Hollywood. You Must Remember This is the podcast series that she started five years ago. She's devoted 12 episodes to the story of Charles Manson's Hollywood. On arrival, he was a talent to outdo the Beatles, he thought, and a revolutionary. The entertainment capital itself was in transition, too, between pictures. You know, Charles Manson learns how to play guitar in prison, and he is released from prison in the spring of 1967 and doesn't know where to go. And he somehow ends up in Berkeley, California, right before the Summer of Love. And as a lifelong con artist, he comes to understand that there's sort of an opening here with all these vulnerable young people, especially young women, many of whom are under the influence of drugs and they're runaways, they're disenfranchised, they're alienated from what they consider to be the establishment, and they're looking for somebody to tell them how to live and to give them an alternative. And so it's there in Berkeley where he starts collecting these women around him and telling them that he's going to be a rock star, basically. You know, he started writing songs and and he puts this philosophy that he's come up with in the songs and then the girls start proselytizing for him. So eventually they decide that, like, in order to fulfill Charlie's rock star ambitions, they have to be in Los Angeles, which is the center of the record industry. But at that time, the 60s in the entertainment industry was a time when a lot of institutions that had been in place for many decades were kind of falling apart because the older people in charge had lost touch with what the younger people were interested in. I mean, this was extremely profound in the film industry, which had lost a lot of its audience to television and to a new generation of teenagers who were more interested in rock and roll than in the movies. But in the music industry, too, there was some confusion about how to capitalize on what these these disenfranchised kids who were professing that capitalism was anathema, like how to actually sell them rock and roll. So it was into that world that Charles Manson was able to kind of penetrate because people were looking for people like him who seemed to be on the edges, who seemed to be on the fringes, and seemed to be able to talk to young people. In the big picture, in long hindsight, what was the mix of talent and psychosis in this young man? His music is available. You can buy it or download it on the internet. It's not my cup of tea. <laughs> I don't think it's particularly sophisticated or interesting. I think his real talent was as being a con man. He was extremely good at manipulating people and into putting ideas in their head and making them think that they thought of them. The culture of those days is, is memorable. Bonnie and Clyde in 67, Dennis Hopper's moment 
Easy Rider, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, all part of cultural trends that generated something like war. Yeah, I mean, Easy Rider was the big surprise hit of the summer of 1969, right as the Manson murders were happening. The Graduate? The Graduate was in 67, along with Bonnie and Clyde. And there's a really interesting book called Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris, which is about the Oscar race from films in 1967. And that book really pinpoints this generational clash that was happening because the five films that were nominated for Best Picture that year were Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Dr. Doolittle. So you really have something like Dr. Doolittle, which is an old-fashioned idea of how Hollywood does business and makes crowd-pleasing entertainment. And then you have varying degrees moving forward from there until you get to things like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, which are trying to speak to the, the youthful generation. A new cool was rising. You quote somebody saying, if you weren't an outlaw, you were part of the problem in that world. And that was the current that Charles Manson wrote on. Yeah, but I think we have to be careful because somebody like Warren Beatty or even Dennis Hopper, like they weren't real outlaws because they had wealth and they had celebrity and standing and they had access um, to institutions that somebody like Charles Manson did not have. So he was really on the outside and he was looking in and wanting to get in, you know, wanting to give up his outlaw life to become a rock star and to have fame and celebrity and wealth. And then what happened? Well, after he moved with his first small amount of followers to Southern California in mid-1967, they ended up, you know, sort of attracting more people while at the same time Manson was starting to have this friendship with Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer for the Beach Boys. And Dennis Wilson introduced him to one of his childhood friends, who was Terry Melcher, who's the son of Doris Day, and he was a record producer. And so Charles Manson is kind of like trading the sexual availability of these young women who are under his control for the access he wants into this sort of inner sanctum of the music industry. And that works for a while, but... Ultimately, the people with the power and the money and the wealth and the ability to give Charles Manson something like a record contract, they sort of get tired of him and they get tired of his weird behavior and, you know, his proselytizing. And and he kind of pushes his luck too far. He's in this situation where he has all these people who are following him who are looking to him for the next step. And he's been kind of feeding them his philosophy and this sort of imaginary prophecy about a race war and and a secret city underground that they're going to escape to. And the young people start getting impatient. They're like, you know, Charles Manson, when is the race war going to happen? When are we going to go live in the utopian city underground? All of these things kind of converge at once. He's not becoming a rock star. His famous friends won't call him back. He's out of money. They're all living on this ranch that used to be a movie set. They don't have a lot of food and people are having babies that they can't feed. Manson's going to kind of lose control of these people. They're going to stop believing in him. And so he is kind of motivated to make something apocalyptic happen. To this day, Karina, can we explain the grip of Charles Manson on his family, so-called? And was it him or was it the culture? I think that it's him and it, it has to do with 
how the culture was creating a vulnerability in in the followers. As I said, a lot of them were runaways or they were young women who felt like they didn't fit into what straight mainstream conventional society expected of them. And they were looking for something else. And a lot of them had either dependency issues, father issues. They were looking for a man to kind of show them the way. And Charles Manson was brilliant at that. Karen Longworth, Karina Longworth's blog is Cinematical. Her podcast is You Must Remember This. Thomas Doherty is professor of American studies at Brandeis University next to Boston. He's a film culture historian in particular. At the front of the line on opening day for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as you told me, Tom, in your historical frame, what, what do you call that juncture, that turning point, whatever it was in 1969? Yeah, well, we're talking about this really special period around 69 when the counterculture is kind of coming to an end. And we always come back to that quote you read at the top of the show from Joan Didion, how you're at this moment where people kind of know, even before the Manson murders, Mm. that the apocalyptic moment is just around the corner. And uh, in a way, it's the fulfillment of all the dread that people had subconsciously in the late 1960s. Uh, And what Didion has done in her, you know, wonderful essay. I should have mentioned White Noise is the essay, and it's worth oh, rereading. Oh, or the White Album. <laughs> I'm sorry, what, the White Album. Yeah. <laughs> After uh, the Beatles, but yeah. we should all read, reread it just for the well, style it, of it, it once a year. It is, and uh, b- because what she's done is she's filtered our entire imagination of the 1960s, uh, very similar to the way F. Scott Fitzgerald did with the 1920s. Hmm. And when he looks back on the 1920s and 1931, when it's still very vivid in memory, but it also seems like it was, you know, decades ago. You know, he says it's like the gay 90s now, two years after the Great Depression, Hmm. that in the 1920s, you know, all his stories, he realized, were about disasters, you know, like, you know, Gatsby, that that even though there was this wonderful party everybody was enjoying, he had this intimation that uh, this isn't the way life was. And both Fitzgerald and Didion were really not of their generation, even though they're configured as spokespeople for their generation. They were really a few years older than the jazz babies of the 20s in Fitzgerald's case or, mm. you know, the counterculture, you know, baby boomers of the 1960s. So they're in the counter, you know, in Didion's case, she's in the counterculture. She's, you know, at the parties and going to the, the, the concerts, but she's a few years older. So she has this distance. And I think both of them also have this deeply Puritan sensibility that too much liberation is not good for you, that uh, too much liberation is going to lead to a kind of Dionysian satanic explosion at the end of it all. And whether it's the stock market crash or, you know, uh, Gatsby, mm. Gatsby getting shot in a swimming pool or whether it's the mass and murders. And that's the meaning of that italicized line at the end of her, her essay when she says when the, when the news first filtered in about the murders at Cielo Drive that I remember this and I wish I did not. No one was surprised. Uh, and I think that's how she's filtered the, the 60s. And that's what's hanging over this film the first time you see it. Uh, I'm looking forward to see it and seeing it again because the first time you see it, you know how it ends. And, you, and especially because it's a Tarantino movie, you do not want to see the Manson murders reenacted by the imagination of Quentin Tarantino. Oh, uh, my Lord. I, yeah. Let, uh, let's just remember no, no. that it wasn't all just hippies. It was civil rights. It was right. Vietnam. It was the awful transition from LBJ to Richard Nixon and more Vietnam War. 
how do we... And aborting feminism. I mean, it's everything there. And I think he's looking at this one moment because he can't do everything. It would just be a confusing kaleidoscope to do Vietnam, to do civil rights, to do feminism, uh, to do, you know, everything else, you know, in that cauldron of 60s tumult, uh, tumult that, uh, you know, he could have attempted to do. And I think it would have been a very confusing, cluttered movie. Anatomize the whole thing, Tom Darty for people like my kids who were not there. Well, you know the old Robin Williams line that anybody who can remember the 60s wasn't really there. And <laughs> it's it's become, I think, you know, with the exception of, gosh, is there an exception, that it's the most contentious decade and it's the one we're still fighting over as a, a cauldron of, uh, of American values, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the chaos, the pain, the, the, the trouble, especially that year, 1968, which is the year right before mm-hmm. the year that Tarantino's movie is about. Uh, you know, we were, we were chatting earlier about this memory my father had at the end of 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Depression, World War II baby, grew up working class here in Boston, you know, had, had knew some hard times. And I, I think I was 14 or 15 at the time at the end of 68. And... Uh, we were watching one of those year-end reviews, and he and he said to me, "This this has been a terrible year. This is the worst year of my life." Mm. And he didn't mean personally, but he he meant that for America. You know, it just seemed like a uh, where America was coming. You know, uh, like coming off at the seams. That it was it just all the certainties that he had grown up with seemed to be questioned. Uh, and I think that sort of confusion and that loudness is also something we might kind of suppress about the 60s, just the, you know, the, the sense of you know, total disorder and chaos and questioning. Now, what does a teenager make of his dad saying this is the worst year? Well, when you're a kid, you're, you know, uh, everything's normal. So even though I had lived through you right. know, the Tet Offensive and uh, uh, Martin Luther King's assassination and RFK's assassination and then at the end of the year, the Manson murders, uh, you know, when you're that age, you don't really – have the perspective to say that, you know, this is you know, one of the weirdest years in American history, which I think everybody mm. today would, would, would say that in a way that even, you know, maybe 1929, it'd be the other horrific year. But if you're talking 1941, at least after Pearl Harbor, America has that sense of unity and mm. a certain mission, uh, where in 68, the kind of the reigning metaphor is cultural confusion. Speak as Tarantino does, and I'm not following with that, but cowboy culture in crisis there yeah. is a white culture. Yeah. This was also a time of tremendous turmoil, but also uh, enormous talent in black culture. Mm-hmm. The death of Martin Luther King sort of sets off many things, but we think of, we did the anniversary of Otis Redding and, mm-hmm. uh, and Monterey Pop mm-hmm. last year. Uh, how does that connect? Or is it Somewhat separate from Tarantino world. Well, it's on the car radio, you know, uh, but it's not directly addressed. And in fact, one of the things that's unusual about this movie, if you look at his other movies in which African-American culture is just so absolutely central to the narratives and to, uh, you know, what's, what's going on in the movie, that mm-hmm. the absence of African-American in culture in this movie, uh, you know, with the exception of some of the soundtrack, is actually quite striking. Uh, and I think maybe it's just he wants to keep Target fi- fixated on the narrative through line of the Manson murders. That if you, if you do Vietnam or you do civil rights, you're into a different trajectory. And I think that he's being very careful not to try to do too much in, in encapsulating the 1960s. Hmm. 
Um, Karina Longworth spoke of that 67 Academy Awards finals. Yeah. Uh, new Hollywood rising, it seemed. Old Hollywood saying farewell with <laughs> Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, with Dr. Doolittle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where does it go from there? I mean, uh, I'm wondering really now, in hindsight, how mu- what was the long-term impact of the new Hollywood, the outside the studio system, the independent filmmakers, a countercultural mm-hmm. edge to a lot of it? Then what happened? Well, the, you know, is that great explosion uh, uh, of wonderful films in the late 60s and early 70s, which has been called the second golden age of Hollywood. Uh, you know, the, the films of uh, Francis Ford Coppola, The Godfather, you know, Scorsese, uh, and of course, Chinatown. Uh, which is, you know, the film that Rick Dalton would be in instead of Jack Nicholson if oh, if the film had ended uh, uh, in, in a different way or if his life had uh, ended in a different way. And all of those films, you know, I think I would argue, have this audience of countercultural baby boomers who are going to these films now and giving them a kind of validation. And that gives the filmmakers the courage to test and challenge the audience because they know the kids are going to be there. So they can do things that movies hadn't done before. And everybody going to movies in the late 60s and early 70s, I think we have to remember, we've all been, th- that generation was raised on production code cinema of a very kind of Victorian moral ending and these films of the late 60s and early 70s, of course, now without the production code, without you know, uh, onerous censorship, they can do things that had never been done before on right. screen. And if you went to the movies, and I, this would be your generation too, Chris. I remember it so well. And you remember walking out of theaters and just having your head blown because you have literally seen something you have never seen before on the screen. And whether it was like a moment or a, a word, or a, a you know a little vignette, or if it were a whole narrative, or like a little China- skin even. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing you'd go for. But a film like Chinatown, which is a film without moral order, you know that that in a way is the film that we're waiting for Roman Polanski uh, uh, to make. I mean, Downhill Racer, the arrival of Robert. Redford, right, not or, to or Paul you know, Newman, or William Goldman talks about in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1968 when uh, 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 Butch uh, uh, kicks uh, a person in a, a certain masculine area in a in a famous fight scene. And if you saw that in a theater in '68, Goldman says, and I remember that moment myself. The audience is on the ceiling because you would flat never seen that before. So that's what comes out of this generation of directors. And I think Polanski's there to symbolize all the possibilities that we're going to see on it, the Hollywood screen. It's not screen. what we came to talk about, but where did not only that industry go, but where did that audience go? Ah, well, Movies were a staple of conversation. Yeah, yeah. Moved down to Scarsdale. Where the hell am I? I mean, what, where, they, they all got married and they started having kids and they went to sort of different movies. And so by the late 70s, that audience isn't isn't there as much. And also, of course, you can only do uh, an unprecedented transgressive moment once and then it doesn't become as uh, memorable or transgressive the second or second or third time you do it. So all that, that, that sort of arc of movies from 67 and it kind of ends with uh, either Apocalypse Now or, you know, the Chimino movie, whose title I'm blanking on, uh, uh, in, in the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
Any, any more <laughs> movies you want to drop into the hopper there? Uh, They're all fascinating. Uh, speaking of hopper, right, it'd be either Easy Rider or the last movie, uh, which is uh, you know another kind of Dennis Hopper moment. Stand by, Tom Doherty. Coming up, Boston Globe film critic Ty Burr joins the quest for the moral arc in Quentin Tarantino's universe, which has never caught up with his reputation for blood and gore on the screen. This is Open Source. Ty Burr's review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood led with an argument that there is a moral imagination hard at work in Quentin Tarantino. Ty, you called him a devoted, if prankish, priest at the altar of cinema who understands that the movies are essential to making sense of an insensible world. What did you mean? Uh, What I meant is that... um there's reality and there's storytelling. Uh, and one of the reasons that I find Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so moving is that I think it's the most personal movie that Tarantino has made about his love for storytelling as a way to fix reality um, and mm. to... Why do, we, why do we tell stories? Why do we put narratives together? Why do we go to movies? Think about that in 1969 when the Manson murders happened, we were coming out of many decades of a factory town that existed to make happy endings, to make dreams, Mm -hmm. to make stories in which the Depression didn't wreck people's lives, we we won World War II before we won it, where things worked out. And it starred starred these movies, these stories starred these people who were immortal, we thought were immortal. Um, even, you know, as we're reading about scandals, they have a certain larger-than-life godlike quality. Um, what happens in 1969 is a brutal dismantling of that. Um, and, you know, as, as Tom Doherty mentioned, you know, we're coming out of 1968 and the horrors of that year with politicians and, and public figures being murdered. But there's something about Sharon Tate, um, a beautiful young actress, you know, eight or nine months pregnant, um, butchered the way she was that that um undid i think a lot of people i was 12 when that happened i remember for me it was sort of the first sense that even that coming after 1968 that something was out of completely out of joint and untethered at the sort of center of the moral universe that that you know the, the beast had been loose something was slouching toward bethlehem um and the thing about this movie is that Tarantino, for the really the first time, he's he's played games with history in in uh, World War II with Inglorious Bastards and with slavery and Django Unchained. But this time he's talking about something he loves mo- more than anything in the world, which is movies, which is Hollywood, which is this period that he grew up in, mm. and he and he sees that it's this this time of innocence that was that not only changed how movies were made, but changed how people processed reality. And it changed what kind of stories we told. You know, you were talking about how um, Rick Dalton would end up starring in Chinatown. It's pretty, I would lay a pretty even bet that um, if Sharon Tate had lived, uh, Chinatown would not have ended with Evelyn Mulray dying. Um, The point of that movie is, Again, the insistence that there is no moral core. There's no, there, the, the universe is chaos. Ty, um, Ty I'm, I'm dying to ask you a quick 
digress your sure. question. What does it mean to call this an audience picture that, and, and that some audiences cheer at the end of it? Oh, it's I, I, one of the more fascinating things about this movie, and I've seen it twice now, and Tom, you should go see it a second time. It's really, yeah. um, it's a different experience the I second will. time when yeah. you know what's coming. Um, is, I mean, I think, you know, when this is on streaming and we're watching it at home alone um, or with a family, it's going to be more of a solitary experience. When you see it in that communal setting of a movie theater, that, that disappearing venue where we used to go see movies as a matter of course and before we all stayed home and looked at them on our phones, um, you have this cathartic experience. It's a genuinely cathartic experience. And some people laugh in either horror or shock or delight, and some people wince and look away. And, and it's, it is Tarantino violence, but it has a purpose. Um, and more of a purpose, and, and actually sort of a moral purpose, and one that throws it back on the viewer and says, well, what do you think about this? Is this too much? If you think it's too much, are you actually defending, you know, uh, other Manson killers? I mean, you have to come out of this movie with questions that you then talk our, about uh, outside. Our question really is, who is Tarantino after all? Here's another digression. Not least, he is a micro-historian of the film Biz, with imagination on top. In Vanity Fair Online, there is a terrific video conversation between Tarantino and Leo DiCaprio, who plays the stalled actor Rick Dalton. Tarantino made up that character, pure fiction, but he's come to know the guy intimately as a maybe bipolar type of that era and a very real person. Listen to this. The clip starts with DiCaprio and then Tarantino. It's the day in the life of a man sort of going not only through an emotional breakdown but a, a tra- and a transition in his career and a realization that time has sort of passed him by, that culture has passed him by. But creating a character that is literally on set working on a job that for the first time he's being sort of challenged. Now, Rick, about your hair. Oh, what about my hair? I want to go with a different hairstyle. <laughs> what? Something more hippie-ish. You, you, you want him to look like a hippie? Rick Dalton represented a certain type of actor that came out in the late 50s and the early 60s. A few spots on some television shows, a few smaller parts in, uh, like, military ensemble, you know, in the background of submarine movies and stuff. People that are comparative to him would be people like Ed Burns, George Maharis, who was on the show Route 66, Ty Harden, who was on uh, Bronco, and then eventually he landed on NBC on a TV show called Bounty Law. On the same year, over on CBS, Steve McQueen landed on a very similar show about a bounty hunter called Wanted Dead or Alive. And for a period of time, they were uh, uh, kind of uh, similar in uh, uh, fame and, and popularity. They were a certain type of leading man that was promoted back then. Kind of handsome, rugged guys, spent their whole careers running pocket combs through their pompadours. But by 1969, they never saw this happening. The culture had changed. And now the new leading man is not He-Man kind of macho guys that put pomade in their hair. It's skinny, androgynous, shaggy-haired type guys. So now it's Michael Sarazan. Now it's Christopher Jones. Now it's like the hippie sons of famous people like uh, young Michael Douglas and even Arlo Guthrie starring in movies. You know, now if Rick's going to get a part of one of their movies, he's probably going to be the cop who's busting them. 
Rick doesn't understand any of this stuff as far as New Hollywood is concerned. If he was offered deliverance, he turned it down. What? No one wants to see that. Who the hell wants to see that? <laughs> He's wrong, but he doesn't know that. It's the Hollywood he'd been taught. It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Tarantino, Tiber, is such a geek as well as an artist <laughs> and maybe a moralist. <laughs> Are they all like that? Um, well, one of the one of the wonderful things about that 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 clip that you aired is that he goes on and references um, other actors. Ralph Meeker, he references. He loves Ralph uh, Meeker. Pete Duell, <laughs> uh, Pete Duell, the actor who um, killed himself after two seasons of Alias, Smith and Jones, and uses that as sort of a fulcrum for DiCaprio to get into his character. One of the people he doesn't mention, but I'm familiar with, who's definitely part of that group, and there's a fun resonance here, is an actor named Bing Russell. Um, who was in over 800 shows, and he was doing exactly what DiCaprio was doing. His most recognizable part was he was on Bonanza um, over the course of that its run as Deputy Clem Foster. But he was on every show imaginable, even like Love American Style and The Monkees, but usually as a bad guy. And his son, Kurt Russell, shows up in, in um, as a uh, stunt director in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. and you know that there is that connection there. I actually wrote an article about Bing Russell a couple of years ago and interviewed Kurt Russell, um, and he talked about how his dad died more times on TV than Kurt Russell has ever worked in his life. Um, and that is the journeyman actor that is out there doing, you know, working to put food on the table, but they're in everything, and they're everywhere you look. And, um, and in many ways, this film is a salute to those people. You know, i got to say to both you, Tiber, and Tom Darty. I'm one of those pretty regular moviegoers who missed pretty much all of Tarantino's work after Pulp Fiction just because of his reputation for mayhem. What have I missed? And where's to catch up? Uh, well, Start like, with Jackie Brown. Yeah, I'd, I'd really agree with that. A lot of people think Jackie Brown's better than uh, Pulp Fiction, really a, a marvelous, uh, what Tarantino calls a hangout movie. And that's a movie mm -hmm. where... This is you, a hangout movie too, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's one where the first, he says the first time you see something like this, you're a little distracted by the plot. But then the second time you see it, you can just sort of hang out with the characters. So you go, you'll go again to uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to hang out with Rick and Cliff again and, you know, Correct. see Brandy the dog and, uh, you know, and pick up on the lines of dialogue and sort of the set design background that you missed the first time around. Ty Burr? Um, definitely start with Jackie Brown because it is the depth of characters and the depth of uh, performances from Pam Greer on down. And again, it's one of those Tarantino movies that reclaims certain performers like Robert Forster and Pam Greer, who'd you know been forgotten in the way that uh, Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood reclaims um, types of actors, a, a kind of performer who was never really paid attention to unless they like Clint Eastwood happened to break free or Steve McQueen, you know, luck into movies. Um, so it's, it's, it's got the Tarantino violence, but it's more than that. It is just a juicy story, well told with love for its characters. Uh, any non-violent movies in the, in the catalog? You mean in the Tarantino? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm also, next question quickly is, uh, rank him with Robert Altman, Stanley Kubrick, his contemporaries. Well, I mean, his predecessors, and, and then the contemporaries. Uh, I don't know how Ty feels, but I think he's... I mean, if you just look at the nine films he's done so far, he says he's just going to do 10. I hope he picks, like, a rounder number, like 20. Uh, mm. But certainly, eight of those are terrific movies. 
No, uh, I, I didn't like Hateful Eight, and uh, but I think the others are all just you know remarkable. And if you if if you just want to think of how many times he's gone to bat and really scored either with like an utter home run or certainly a triple, uh, it's very difficult to see you know a contemporary filmmaker who's worked at quite that level for so long. What I find interesting about him, first of all, I don't think that there's anybody really working in the same position that Tarantino is, in that he's essentially an independent filmmaker with a mass audience. I mean, you've, mm. got the, you've got the Andersons, people, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, and the Coen brothers, who come closest to what I think is Tarantino is doing. But they tend to have smaller, sophisticated, um, you know, indie film, art house film audiences. Whereas with Tarantino, I think, with Inglorious Bastards, really broke out to um, as close to a mainstream audience as his kind of filmmaker really can anymore. There's really nobody like him in the way that, yeah, Altman, people would go see an Altman movie. Mainstream audiences would go to see an Altman movie after MASH. Um, and mainstream audiences would go to see a Kubrick movie because they knew he was a major um, craftsman and voice, and they were going to have an, ex- an experience unlike any other. And I think that Tarantino is really just about the only other person, uh, the only person doing that today, the Coen brothers come close, yeah. that really does attract um, not just art house film goers, you know, sophisticated film goers, but everybody. Everybody knows the name um, in a weird way. And they showed the, a lot of us. identity but... of Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, I wonder why he has so persistently uh, stuck with the violent thing, which puts so much of his audience off. But that's maybe another question. I want you both to speak to the point that this is uh, a 60s movie that touches all kinds of sore spots in 2019, and Mm. as well as a sense of maybe a, a, a critical national emergency. But a crisis around masculinity, toxic or otherwise. Maureen Dowd called the movie Requiem for White Men in a time of uh, women's rights being completely seen anew. What, what is the 29 piece, 2019 well, piece of this? Tarantino? Well, I think it's less a requiem than kind of a celebration for... Uh, in an, his heart it is, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, well, and also when you see it with a popular audience, trust me, when Brad Pitt takes off his shirt, you know, as he's, <laughs> yep. uh, uh, yep. as he's repairing the antenna, that there, there's a very, uh, I would say, uh, you know, uh, embrace of that by uh, uh, 90% of the females and 15% of the males in, in the audience that I was at. Uh, and that old-fashioned kind of star magnetism and a kind of a er masculine patriarchal. Mas- I wonder how much of the resistance to the movie, critical and otherwise, yeah. is just that he has presented these men as the essence of cool, and then and, 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 and non-ironically. And the uh, of course in the text, uh, Brad Pitt is the side, or you know, Cliff is the sidekick of Rick Dalton. Where I think in the movie, the uh, Rick Dalton is obviously the sidekick of uh, of Cliff. Right, right, exactly. Rick Rick would love to be like uh, like Cliff. Yeah. Uh, Cliff is cool. We'd all like to be Rick like Cliff. Rick is having a person, yes. person, you know, is, is having a uh, emotional crisis. Right. Um, I I don't think that you really. I think you can only take the parallels to 2019 so far. I think that's for us and the audience to do. I I really don't feel that Tarantino is working that way. I think he's so steeped in the period when you hear him talk about this film he's not he's not bringing it up today he's not thinking about trump or you know toxic masculinity yeah. it's there for us to play around with certainly because as has been talked about earlier in the show we're at uh, probably the worst year 
in, since 1968-69 in our country's history. We're at an, at an extreme moment of erupting chaos. Um, so, yeah, that's in that sense, the movie's a look in a mirror. Um, but it also, in a certain way, it's a, it's a conservative, and I mean aesthetically conservative film in that it says, well, we're going to tell the story a different way, and we're going to send you home cathartic but happy um, mm-hmm. in ways that reality doesn't really do for us. Mm-hmm. Have we spoken enough of the fun of watching this movie? Uh, yeah, I think as the we're pleasure. getting into all this intellectualizing, uh, <laughs> and we all, we all do it, is this is a really fun movie uh, uh, that, uh, you know, it's two hours and 40 minutes uh, long, and, and it zoomed by for me, and it's the first movie I've seen this year where you know, when the lights go up, not only do you remember it by the time you get to your car in the parking lot, which is not true of a lot of movies, but you, you say, i got to see this again. And in Tom, Boston— what's your favorite scene? Uh Oh, I, I, the Spawn Ranch scene where... Yeah, uh, me too. Oh, really? Uh, too. Th- 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 yeah. Th- th- there's this amazing Hitchcockian scene where yep. uh, Brad Pitt goes to Spawn Ranch and he knows something is wrong there. That the There's just, uh, you know, the vibes of the creepiness of uh, uh, the hippies that, 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 that he sees that the sexy girl that he's picks, picked up isn't just kind of jail bait, that some, there's something else going on here. And he detects the real possibility that a, an old friend of his might be in danger. And he's not going to leave Spawn Ranch until he assures himself that this this guy is is safe, and that's okay. that's where you really get the I think the the, the moral character of Cliff mm-hmm. as as our hero. Mine may not be as deep as that, but the scene of Mirabella, the eight year old yeah. young prodigy actress, ah, yeah. instructing him in yeah. the significance of his work. Yes, right. And she's like she's like something out of a Victorian, uh, you know play, a stage play, like the little angel coming, being flown in out of the wings to make everything right with the hero. I love that scene. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and talk about agency and an effect of of an intuitive, uh, and then the effect on him when she comes up after his tour de force and says, that's the best acting that ever happened. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. No, it's it, it's a uh, you know I think it, it's one of those films that not only repairs careful viewing, but you know Ty's point earlier about sort of just the joy of seeing this with an audience, you know, an audience that's uh, you know primed to love it. it and it's, every so often you, you you go to a movie and it's like you're five or ten minutes in, and, and you can just feel the audience go, "This one's mm. going to be good. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. I'm really going to enjoy the the ride here." Right. And and it's one of those movies. Well said. Thank you, Tom Darty. Thank you, Ty Burr, Karina Longworth, and Scott Hamra. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is the queen of our cult. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Oh, hit pound 947 at KHJ with Humble Hobbin. We'll take it down home.